The following is an encore presentation of Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Paul would like to wish you and everyone the safest and happiest of holidays. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Today is Election Day. I have decided to take a break from anything political with this exception. I call it words you will never hear from Donald Trump if he loses the election. My fellow citizens, the American people have spoken. While I was hoping for a different outcome, I will respect the wishes of the voters. I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden on his victory, and I want to assure him that I will do everything in my power to make certain that we have the smoothest transition in American history. Again, I title this, Words That You Will Never Hear From Donald Trump Should He Lose the Election. If you hear anything on Voices of Experience that you would like to talk about, call 206-459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. Now we turn to a comic legend, Pat Cashman of King Five's Almost Live fame that aired in Seattle between 1984 to 1999. If you want some comic relief and a history of the award-winning Almost Live show, Pat Cashman will be up in just a few minutes. But first, Chasmin Kendrick, co-host of The Way with Chaz and Tay, a radio show and podcast which airs on KKNW at 7 a.m. on Thursdays, is with us. Today, Chasmin wants to talk about a talented local band with a message. I know that you are really into music. So what is so special about this band? It's actually funny that you say that because like, I'm a huge music lover. I grew up dancing, so... I'm, I'm very much a, if it sounds good and I can dance to it kind of thing, I'm probably going to like it. Um, so other than the fact that this band, they're called the Martial Law Band, um, they make really great music to dance to, but they're also a live band. Like every instrument that you hear being played, there is somebody there playing it, which is, which is awesome. And I feel like kind of unheard of more or less, I guess, in my generation. But they um, just dropped their first studio album. It's called Twelfth and Pine, which is very local. If you guys, you know, local to this Seattle area, you know all about Twelfth and Pine. But I believe that the message behind this album is really important to the to the time because they're they're kind of talking to to their to their youth. You know, our, our us people are talking to us and saying like, hey it's really important that you guys are educated kind of like on what's going on and, and helping us find our purpose during this time, you know, like with COVID and all of the weird social justice things that are going on. It's kind of like and he, they're using their music to spread that message. And I, I can really appreciate that because it's also great music at the same time. What I really liked that they did to help uh, promote this album is they created this float you know, like a parade float, and they decorated it. And in order to celebrate the release of this album, they drove around Seattle and played live music from this float. They were like, hey, we're just going to take the show to you guys. One of my favorite songs off of the album is called Louder. And then uh, in parentheses, it's called Black and Proud. My thanks to Chasman. Now again, listen to The Way with Chaz and Tay on Thursday mornings at 7 a.m., right here on KKNW. And again, it's the Marshall Law Band, and the album is Twelfth and Pine. 
Jasmine said her favorite song on the album is Louder. And as a bonus, Jasmine and Shantae are in the video of the song Louder. Just Google Martial Law Band, Marshall with two L's, and you can listen to some of their music and then find a pathway to their website. Pat Cashman, coming up next. Before Amazon was still best known as a monster river running through South America, even in Seattle, a local TV show, Almost Live, aired weekly on King 5 Television between 1984 and 1999. For those of you who are not familiar with Almost Live, I think it can be best described as a local version of Saturday Night Live. Almost Live was so popular that NBC allowed the show to push back Saturday Night Live by a half an hour so the show could air at 11.30 p.m. Saturday evenings. Local comedy legend Pat Cashman is with me today. Pat will recount the cast members and talk about how some of the most remarkable sketches were born. There was no shortage of talent. For example, Bill Nye, the science guy, got his start on Almost Live. So did actor Joel McHale, John Keister, Bob Nelson, Steve Wilson, Nancy Guppy, Ross Schaefer, Ed Wyatt, Bill Stanton, Brooke Smith-Beth, Joe Guppy, and Tracy Conway were just some of the major cast members. Because of time limitations, I will not be able to scratch the surface of the many comedy sketches that were developed during Almost Live's reign. But here are some of them. The Adventures of Sluggy, The Lame List, The Worst Girlfriend in the World, Uncle Fran, Cops, Green River Dance, Jet Guy, and one of my favorites, Roscoe's Rug Emporium, which we will talk about today. Now, mind your manners with Billy Kwan. Now, who came up with that one? Well, I would I would credit it uh, to John Keister. I, it was his idea to do this thing. And, you know, uh, Bruce Lee hailed from Seattle and had that background. And so I think maybe we locally were more intrigued by those Bruce Lee movies than maybe elsewhere in the country, arguably. I don't know that. But but we just thought it was funny that the, the idea that, uh, you know, we could, the movies, Enter the Dragon and all those Bruce Lee movies, were always rather badly dubbed. And so the idea was that we would do this show with, with very bad dubbing, voices that didn't really fit the character at all. Uh, for example, Billy Kwan, the Asian character who was the Kung Fu expert, that was my voice doing Billy Kwan. Uh, and uh, it didn't fit the character at all. You have offended me. Therefore, yes. okay. I shall vanquish you. That was the dumb premise of it. And that would be the last thing we would do after shooting the piece. And I think it's funny you'd bring Billy Kwan up because I don't think there was a single type of episode uh, or regular character that we did more on the 15 years of Almost Life than Billy Kwan. And, and they were really just cartoons. It's all it was. They always were the same. They always ended the same. Billy vanquished the bad guy, who was John Keister. And Billy was this sort of um, moralist who uh, was easily offended by any breach of protocol uh, that he uh, saw. If you were talking too loud in the library, it would it would work him up. There were small and offenses. Get, there weren't big things a lot, right? Is no, they were never that, right? big. <laughs> That's right. But he would get way over the top in his 
in his offense about it and would, uh, of course, as as you as people must resort to vi- physical violence. And uh, and he would get it back from the other guy in kind, like a Warner Brothers cartoon, Roadrunner, Coyote sort of thing. And it would always be the same. And um, and one of the mainstays of them was always that you would get a camera point of view of Billy jumping through the air so that you would see his legs in the foreground coming towards the bad guy. Right. Well, we actually had a pair a pair of legs uh, like from a dummy. And we and they would be uh, a central part of every shoot. And I remember one time I was sitting at King and I was working on editing some piece. And I got a call in my editing room and I picked up the phone and he and said, Hey, Tashman, this is Keister. We're down here shooting Billy Kwan down by Leshi. I said, Yeah, okay. So, uh, hey, can you do us a favor? We forgot to bring the legs with us. And we need that. We need the legs for part of the shoot, of course. Could you bring the legs by? I go, uh, well, look, you know, I'm kind of busy right now. And they say, no, please, you, you'd really be helping us out here. It's the last part of our shoot. So I said, okay. So I get in a van, I have the legs with me, and I drive down to Leshi, and they're shooting in a park down there. And I see them, the crew, Keister, uh, the guy who plays Billy Kwan, a guy named Daryl Suto. And without slowing down, I toss the legs out the window of the van and just keep right on driving so that the legs land right between them. And I don't notice that there's an older couple shuffling down the sidewalk and the legs go flying right in front of them and then land harmlessly on the ground. And I I always thought later, what did those people think? You know, oh, my God, Dolores, look at it. There's some legs that went flying by. Oh no, you're wrong, Jim. That uh, you're seeing things. We we've got to see the doctor immediately. I mean, the show was like that every day. We never asked permission to do things. We just it, it was a different time. Remember, the show ended in 1999. 9/11 came along two years later we could not have done half the stuff we did. We would throw dummies off of buildings. We would run around with toy guns downtown. Uh, nobody ever, you know, really thought much of it. Well, you know something I was just going to suggest to anybody who didn't see this episode of Billy Kwan or the series, you can Google Billy Kwan and you can see them and really look at what we're talking about and Quan is spelled Q-U-A-N. Another one I want to move to is my favorite, too, and that's um, Roscoe's Rug Emporium. And I think I mentioned to you once, but I do want to repeat it. That's one of the few times in my life where I watched it for the first time. I thought it was entertaining at the beginning, and by the end, I was on the floor laughing my head off. And I almost, I, I, I was crying. It was so damn funny. How did you develop that one? Well, you're very kind to say those words about it. Uh, and, and the interesting thing to me about it is that it is not, it is a single shot. There's not any cutaways. There's not any, uh, you know, drama to it. There's no reaction shot. It's just one guy on camera, me, for about a minute and 40 seconds, just yelling at the camera. There's no, there's nothing else that happens there other than, some uh, graphics that come flying in and, and some background business. Uh, I, it, it, it's such a simple idea. I was just 
walking through Pioneer Square one day, and I noticed that there was a, a variety of these, what is now, for some reason, still called Oriental rugs. I can't believe in this age of political correctness that that, that word Oriental is still a mainstay in that rug business, but it is. And, and I noticed when I was walking through Pioneer Square that they're all going out of business, almost without exception. They're all saying, final days, uh, you know, 75% off, we must go. Only in that particular uh, business of mercantile. It, you didn't see it on tire stores or anywhere else. It was only on so-called oriental rug stores. So that's, that was the simple genesis of the idea. And I thought of this idea where a guy's, it's a commercial where a guy's telling you that they're going out of business, but he isn't quite convincing about how, whether they're going out of business or not of, of this stuff. Well, you know what you just brought out that I hadn't thought of is I was working down in Pioneer Square around that same time. And I noticed the carpets too. And I think subconsciously I'd be walking by every day and I think that sign's been there for a year. And I think a lot of people <laughs> did that. You know what I mean? But we didn't do yeah. anything about it. We just thought you brought it to the surface. And that's what I think made it so funny because we were all kind of thinking that in our subconscious. Yeah, well, thank you for, for that. And that, and I guess not to be too grandiloquent about it, but that is that is where the best humor lies. It's, it's when people can recognize something that they know to be true. And you just all you do is just expound on it and, and take it take it to an extreme. But if nobody knew what the heck that was all about, they never noticed it themselves, then it wouldn't have resonated. But it did because uh, it was something, yes, I've seen that too. I wondered about that. Oh, I get it. You're listening to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. I'm talking with Pat Cashman, one of the cast members of Almost Live, a television show that aired in Seattle and nationally between 1984 to 1999. You can visit YouTube and watch rebroadcasts of Almost Live. Also, visit almostlivestillalive.com. Pat Cashman talks to many of the former cast members. That's almostlivestillalive.com, all one word. Or, to really simplify things, Go to marketingnw.com and you can find a pathway to the previous shows of Almost Live and to the interviews I spoke about. Now, Pat shares a podcast with former radio mate Lisa Foster called Peculiar Podcast with Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster. Now, back to my conversation with Pat Cashman. There were two bits that I did on the very last two shows of uh, the run of Almost Live that I that nobody knew was going to be the end of the show. One was called The Phobic Gardener, and it was kind of a uh, send-up of Cisco Morris, Ed Hume, The Gardening Show. But this guy, played, played by me, was a gardener that was afraid uh, to be in the garden. He's afraid of aphids. He's afraid of snakes. He's afraid of of bugs of all kinds. He's even afraid, I think, of a lot of the plants. And so he'd go out and he'd try to do a presentation about uh, gardening, uh, but he'd get something would terrify him and he'd run away. And so, uh, so that bit, uh, 
it's called the phobic gardener you can you can put almost live and then the phobic gardener on youtube and it'll come up for you and i i like the idea of, uh, and i thought about this uh, the other day i found in our props department somebody had fashioned for some other show a gigantic rubber spider i mean it was huge it must have been six feet across it was just gigantic and so the idea for the phobic gardener worked backwards from that i thought oh what am i going to do with this giant spider this will be the punchline for the bit and then i worked backwards from that and so at the end of the phobic gardener he's all better now he's gone through counseling everything's great he's not afraid anymore and then this giant spider comes down from above him and i realized a lot of the bits i did i i think and all of us on almost live took pride in that if nothing else our bits were going to have endings to them. There were going to be there was going to be some kind of punchline or finale to our bits because we all would sit around and grouse about. So each bit could stand alone. Successful. You could only see one bit, and you would be able to enjoy that. And it's not like there's something coming next. So every segment would stand on its own. Yeah, Saturday Night Live to this day still has bits that I'm really enjoying. I think, this is great. And then it just ends. There's no reward for the viewer at the end of it. It just kind of peters out. So we always felt as a group, we, we want to have a satisfying ending. There's going to be a point. There's going to be a punchline to this bit. And then one other that I did in the very latter shows of the season was, a, was about a disgruntled TV weatherman named Brian Dixon. And you go to him, and it turns out that it is his final, he's just been told he's fired. Oh, I just saw that one uh, this morning. And so I thought that would be funny to a guy that is, is trying to control his emotions because he's very angry that he's been fired. And he just can't help but spill out into his, into his weather forecast. So I felt, not just for me, but for a lot of the show, people were really hitting their stride, you know. You do something for 15 years, uh, and you start to get good at it. Uh, you start to figure it out. You realize, yeah, uh, doing a shorter bit is better. Um, I think one of my first bits was seven minutes long. That's too long. I didn't get that at first. You get to sharpen your craft as you as you move along. And I think now, after the show has been long over, so many of those people from Bill Nye to Bob Nelson to Keister to Tracy Conway and Nancy Gutt, they're all really good practitioners at what they do now because they really learned how to do it. Yeah, you, I and think you mentioned result, Bill Nye, the science guy. He says that he wouldn't have achieved what he has in life if it hadn't been for almost life. Yeah, I'm doing a podcast now. I'm going to plug that right now. Please. Uh, I've been doing this. It's called Almost Life, Still Alive. And I had decided I was going to interview every cast member from the show from the start. And, and rather than do a round robin thing, I wanted just to feature a particular person, Bill Nye, uh, Joel McHale, John Keister, Tracy Conway, Nancy Guppy, and just talk to them for an hour or hour and a half or whatever it turns out to be. They, they've been really pretty fun. And they tell, I ask people where they came from. Where did you grow up? When did you think you could write comedy? How did you get on Almost Live? And what and how important was that show to where you are now? And and you're right. Bill Nye acknowledges as much. 
Bill Nye the Science Guy character came about quite by accident. Uh, it was a guest that was supposed to be on Almost Live. This is back when the show was an hour long. Ross Schaefer was the host. And there was a guest that was supposed to be inhabiting segment number three or four or whatever it was. They called in at the last moment, said, we can't make it. So what do we do? They noticed, people noticed that Bill was always talking about science. And so the name Bill Nye the Science Guy came about quite spontaneously and said, how about you be Bill Nye the Science Guy and you come out and you do uh, do an experiment? And so that's where Bill Nye said he was kind of pressed into service because like uh, uh, Wally Pipp gets hurt, and this guy named Lou Gehrig gets to step in and play first base. It just caught on, and it was a hit. And Bill kind of realized, oh, my God, this is a character that might have legs. I could do something with this. Bill's career and his life changed, but it was because of Almost Live, and he acknowledges that. And uh, Bob Nelson, who was an Oscar-nominated screenwriter for a movie called Nebraska, you know, he got his writing chops from Almost Live. The only guy I talk to in these podcasts that says, no, Almost Live was great. I don't credit it with my career direction was a Joel McHale. He's done a bunch of things down in Hollywood. and He's in movies and TV shows. He said, that's what I always knew I wanted to do. Almost Live came along and helped me kind of hone my skills a little bit, but I still knew I was going to want to move to Hollywood and take a swing at it. I question that a little bit, but that's what he says. But everybody else, as you said, says, nope, if it wasn't for that show, I wouldn't be where I am today. I tuned in initially because it was local. And the only local shows that we had growing up was J.P. Patches and Brakeman Bill, it seemed. you know, And that's a whole other era. Larry Kaufman and I were working together as publishers of his newspaper and mine at the time. Monday mornings, we would come in and just say, did you see this sketch? Did you see this? It was a religion for us. To be fair about it, the reason the show worked, first of all, it, it, like I said, it got an extended lifetime through various kinds of happenstances. Uh, the best was when it got moved to be the prologue to Saturday Night Live, ran at 1130, and we pushed Saturday Night Live back one half hour so that, so that Almost Live preceded Saturday Night Live. And that wasn't very popular with a lot of viewers at first, but it caught on. And I think the thing that worked about Almost Live was that we never forgot that it's a local show. It caught on and resonated because people began to think, this is our show. Could an Almost Live work again in this market? A few years ago, uh, my son, Chris and I, and John Keister for a period of time, did a show called The 206. Ran for about three years, uh, and it changed its name to up late Northwest. As you know, there have been uh, enormous travails in Seattle, rioting, uh, discord. People have a lot of negativity about politics, Seattle City Council, and all of these things. And, and that question that you just posed has been raised a lot. Is there anything funny about Seattle anymore? Could you do a show uh, about that town that you could do without seriously offending everybody well first of all you got to discard the idea that you're going to dis you're going to offend anybody if that's what you're worried about then you might as well not even attempt it because somebody's always going to be offended but i think and i can't even be specific but of course there are things that you can you can have jokes about you can still you can still joke about boeing and in the politics of the town and the and the mayor and uh, the neighborhoods. And, and in fact, because things have changed so much, it might be fun to juxtapose 
what people used to say about Ballard with what Ballard's like now and, and so on. There, it's all still there. It's just changed. But that doesn't mean that uh, it's, there, there's absolutely nothing to mine there anymore. In fact, it, there are new, mine, new mines to go to. But uh, it, not that it would be easy, and I think you need, you couldn't bring the same old troop of doddering people like, like me back. But we could be, you know, we could uh, be consultants and, and help write some of the material. But you need a younger point of view, the new people that have moved into Seattle. It happened at a time when the town was already changing. Uh, grunge music was happening. Microsoft was becoming a thing. Uh, Amazon wasn't even around yet. The whole of the city and the culture was go- undergoing a seismic change. And Almost Live commented on much of that without really realizing where it was all heading, of course. And it seems to me that I would submit that maybe a comedy show like Almost Live would work really well today in our community because it's so divided. We need something like this. Yeah, I, th- I, I wouldn't it be a, a great salve for all the discord. It might even help. I, I don't know. Well, I, I, think remember... Sarah, I think Almost Live helped our community in the 90s because I think we really need something like that. we got to laugh at ourselves. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I would say, and I, and I don't scold uh, ourselves too hard for this, but uh, a, new, a new Almost Live would certainly have to address diversity. We, you know, these were all white guys on this show, white women and men. Uh, we brought in some people of color in the latter two or three years of the show, but that really was not good enough. I think we would all agree with that. I remember one time we did a bit that we would do uh, parodies of the TV show Cops. And so a particular episode might be Cops in Renton, Cops in Kent. I remember we did an episode called Cops in Redmond. And there was one scene where Bob Nelson, as much of a Caucasian as you could possibly imagine, is walking down the street in Redmond and a cop pulls up to him and says, hey, what what are you doing here? Well, I'm just walking along. Yeah, well, we uh, we don't see too many of your types around here. What do you mean? Well, we don't see that many black people here in Redmond. But but I'm not black. Oh, is that your story? Yeah. And he runs him out of Redmond. That's about as close as we ever got to addressing the goofiness of racial profiling. It obviously be more more muscular now. But that was then, and uh, and that that's how it was. This show existed in a world uh, before social media was a thing. We didn't have people doing mean tweets about, well, that really sucked. You guys suck. I mean, we'd get, you know, you get an occasional email or an angry phone call, but nothing of the monumental volume that you would get now where people can take uh, utter pot shots at you because they can be anonymous and just and just lay into you. And I think uh, in that world now, it could be intimidating. Maybe not for a national show where you're just plowing forward and you and you welcome the controversy. But in a local market like Seattle, it would give you pause. Gee, we, we really offended some people. Uh, the mayor's mad at us. Maybe we maybe we should issue an apology. Uh, you know, whatever. I think it would be it'd be a little tougher now. It would be. And I've talked to my son about this, too. Are there some things that we did even as recently as that 206 show that I mentioned that now probably we would reconsider doing 
just because the climate is so different now. Yeah, it'd be interesting to give it a shot. What's next for you, Pat? Uh, uh, probably a tuna fish sandwich uh, for lunch. You're going to come with a pickle, or are you going to um, toast it, or just a pickle? I don't tend to toast it, uh, but I, when, I, when they are toasted, I like them a lot.